Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking uh, at the questions that Jesus asked various people as he went through his earthly ministry. And today, we come across a question that... uh, I think I've asked quite a bit in my life, and I'm sure the same will be true for a great many here. Perhaps great many is a slight exaggeration this morning, but for many here. And that's probably particularly true if you're a parent, whether a mother or a father. I know that uh, I've often been asked this question. And uh, possibly with a fair degree of impatience when engaged in conversation with someone and then you feel that little tug on your trousers or your shirt. And it means that, uh, in my case, one of my daughters felt the need to urgently seek my attention. At least it would be urgent in their eyes. And in those times, I would turn to them and I would say, what do you want me to do? And that's the question that Jesus asked his disciples. What I'm not sure about is whether it was with the same degree of frustration that I probably asked that question from time to time. The passage we're looking at starts in Mark chapter 10. At verse 32. And it's probably quite fitting that we come to this passage as we lead up towards Easter. Because we're now looking at the final weeks of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in fact, this passage is headed, Jesus foretells his death for a third time. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So here they are. They're on their way up towards Jerusalem. It says Jesus was leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid. Some background might be helpful here, just to set the scene. Because these events are taking place, as I said, near the end of Jesus' life. Jerusalem was the city of God. It was a royal city. It was where the Messiah was expected 
to claim the throne, David's throne. Now Jesus had been to Jerusalem several times before. But on this journey, something was different. He was entering the city in a different way. It was like a king leading his subjects. But as royal possessions possessions go, this was a bit of an unusual one. Because he didn't bring with him an army. The number of followers he had with him were relatively few. And they wouldn't have looked that wealthy or important. But then Jesus wasn't a usual king. I don't know of another king that had had angelic choirs heralding his birth. And yet, beside that, with the exception of some shepherds and some wise men, his birth seemed to go unnoticed in the earth. His life and his ministry fulfilled a lot of Old Testament prophecy. But people didn't recognise that at the time. In fact, they didn't recognise it until after his death and his resurrection. And although they didn't fully understand who he was, although they were often frightened by the things that happened around him, Jesus' disciples continued to follow him on this journey into Jerusalem. And then Jesus opens up this conversation about what's going to happen to him. And it wasn't the first time he'd spoken about that. In Mark 8, you can read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. In chapter 9, it says, Now they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they would kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So here again in chapter 10, for the third time, he's talking about it. It says, he took the twelve aside, and he spoke to them about what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the chief priests and they're going to condemn him and put him to death. In fact, they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. He'll be mocked, he'll be spat on, he'll be flogged and he'll be killed. But three days later he'll rise. He actually was putting before them a terrible list of expectations. One who he loved was going to betray him. The leaders of his own people were going to condemn him. He was going to be given over to the Romans who were hated and be humiliated and killed. But he would endure these things and then he would rise again. And Jesus was courageous enough that he would face this martyrdom alone. I mean, he could have easily said to his followers, I'm going to lose my life, but I love you too much to put you through this, to put you through what lies ahead, so you go off. But he didn't. He could have tried to soften the blow, but he didn't do that either. Instead, he expected his disciples to 
travel with him to the cross. Jesus knew that was their only hope. Jesus was aware of everything about his impending death. But here we see him proceeding resolutely towards Jerusalem. In fact, Luke uses the words that his face was set towards Jerusalem. And that echoes what Isaiah foretold. This is what Isaiah said. But the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. And so here what we read is that the twelve, understanding for a moment what is going on ahead of them, are amazed to see that Jesus has this solemn determination. Because it's in light of everything he's told them about what he's going to suffer and his coming death. But then in addition to the twelve, there were the others who were coming along. And Mark says they were afraid. That fear might have arisen from their belief that perhaps Jesus was just a political messiah. And if so, by following him, perhaps they're going to get into the same difficulties. Perhaps they're even going to face some fierce battles when they get to Jerusalem. But I think it's more likely that this larger group of followers saw Jesus' sober, deliberate progress towards Jerusalem. I think they'd heard from the twelve something about the predictions of his suffering. And they were worried that by following Jesus, they might become martyrs as well. As we continue reading that passage from verse 35, we then come across this conversation between two brothers and Jesus. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptised with the baptism which I am baptised? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism which I am baptised you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So here was Jesus, facing everything that that final journey into Jerusalem held for him. He tried to explain it to them. But these two brothers were more concerned with where they were going to sit in heaven. It's like that young child... They don't understand the importance of the conversation that you're engaged in. Their need is more urgent than yours. 
These two brothers are almost tugging at his cloak, saying, Jesus, Jesus, will you do something for us? And I think you can almost hear the sigh as Jesus replies, what do you want me to do for you? These two brothers had earned the nickname the Sons of Thunder. They'd been disciples of John the Baptist. And they were now in the inner circle of Jesus. If Jesus was going to die and be raised in Jerusalem, they might have thought this journey was the last opportunity to put in their request. It's a request for promotion, if you like. They'd heard Jesus, sorry, they'd heard John declare Jesus to be the promised one sent by God. They'd been present with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and they'd heard that voice from heaven say, this is my son. Their love for Jesus was deep. But as it is with most of us, their love still contained some self-serving motives. They hoped that when Jesus claimed his throne, he would elevate his loyal disciples. Matthew 20 actually tells us that it was the mother of James and John who first raised this question. She went to Jesus and she asked that her sons be allowed to sit next to him in heaven. But even according to Matthew, Jesus then didn't reply to her. He spoke directly to James and John. He was clearly aware that they were the ones who desired the benefit of this special status. The fact that they sent their mother to ask the question and the fact that the issue aroused jealousy in the other ten just goes to point to how self-serving their request was. They desired a position, something that would place them above the others. These sons of thunder had mixed motives. They wanted personal advantage. But they were also willing to face the dangers ahead because they loved Jesus. They fully expected that God was going to give him the throne of David and that there would be some glorious outcome to this mission. And so in their request, although there's self-centeredness, there's also a fair degree of faith. It was only just before this incident that Jesus had said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus was this poor Galilean. He was heading towards something terrible. But his followers believed in his future victory. And what's clear is they wanted to be included in it when they came to glory. And in his answer, Jesus shows no hint of condemnation. He doesn't show it of James or John because of their self-seeking attitude, or for the other ten who were jealous. Their desire was simply that one day they might be great. Lord, I want a share in your victory. 
I want to be with you there in your glory. I want significance that outshines every other hope for significance that I've ever had. I want to know joy and love. I want to be the person I was intended to be. I was made in the image of God. I'm destined for greatness. You know, I think too many of us never ask to be great. We see ourselves instead through glasses that show us failure and inadequacy. We don't even know at times how to imagine ourselves being worthy of God's love. Of being at his side and hearing him say, well done. Yet here are these two men. They could see themselves in special places of honour. One at his left and one at his right. When Jesus, as a strictly political Messiah, would rule in Jerusalem on the throne of David. There would indeed be a future time of glory, but the path there was going to be severe. There was going to be divine judgment in it for Jesus. The cup that he refers to that he was going to drink was the cup of God's wrath. And that was going to be poured out on him. Bearing that wrath in the place of a sinful man. His baptism was to be his suffering and his death. And that was going to pour over him like a flood. Before we condemn these two men... We need to remember that James 4 says, we don't have because we don't ask. These two men were brave enough to ask. What do you want Jesus to do for you? He never turns aside those who ask to be made great in his kingdom. Because he intends to make us great. But the method of achieving greatness may not be what we expect. These two disciples understood Jesus' question. He asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? I think they took it to mean there was a need for them to fight alongside Jesus. And so they bravely answered, we're able Jesus, however, teaches them instead that they will undergo a form of suffering. You will drink and you will be baptised. Since only Jesus could bear the divine judgment in a substitutionary way, the disciples' suffering would be for their own purification, to show God's glory. The only way to greatness is by his cross. To become who he intends us to be, we must join him in the execution of our sinful nature. Jesus said, can you undergo my baptism? To us that's a religious word. But in Jesus' time, baptism was a normal 
use word. It was in everyday usage. It meant simply to fully immerse one thing into another. Shipbuilders used the word baptism when they placed a ship in the ocean after bringing it out of dry dock. In many cases the word was used to mean totally submerged or even drowned. And Jesus was asking his followers, can you be drowned as I am? Are you willing to lose your life to gain it? There was a time when the Apostle Paul thought that he could fix things himself. He thought he could clean up what was unclean and make himself worthy in God's eyes because he knew the law. And he thought he could perform well enough. But then he realised his need. And he cried out in desperation for help. His words are in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus said to his disciples, I intend for you to be even greater than you long to be. But the way to the greatness is the cross. And then as we read on from verse 41, it says, And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're told that the ten became indignant with James and John. I think the reason is not because they were offended by the audacity of the request. I think they were annoyed they didn't think of it first. I think each of those ten wanted to sit on the right hand or the left of Jesus. But James and John got in first. They made that request. And so the ten became angry. And Jesus called all twelve of them together. And again he didn't condemn them for what they were feeling or saying or doing. But he corrected their understanding of it. You don't know what you're asking for. But I'll tell you. The way to attain what you desire is through my baptism. Jesus' followers didn't understand what greatness was. They didn't know what it looked like and they didn't know how to measure it. Because they didn't know how to recognise true greatness. And because of that, they would choose wrong things when they tried to pursue it. And so Jesus tried to show them a contrast. He says, the Gentiles lord it over those in their charge. In this case, 
Gentiles in the text refers to people who didn't believe. Sometimes the New Testament uses the word to mean those who don't believe in God as opposed to Jews who did believe in the true God. And this is the distinction that Jesus makes. Those in the world who don't believe in God lord it over one another. They measure greatness by the distance they can put between them and the people in their charge. By the number of people they can command and how they can control them, manipulate them and dominate them. They measure greatness by their ability to affect outcomes in the short term. But the kind of leadership that should happen in the church among believers is not what we see in the world. People of God, in a community of faith, don't use those methods. We shouldn't be dominating, demanding, threatening. We shouldn't be measuring the distance between those who are great and those who are not. We shouldn't be looking to peddle influence, or to punish the weak, or to reward the strong. interesting how Jesus words this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He doesn't bother to make the opposite point. He doesn't say not so, sorry, he does just say not so among you. Whatever's true in the world not among you. If you want to recognise greatness as it really exists, if you want to be someone whose significance grows, it needs to be out of the real presence of God in your life. You mustn't believe what the world believes about greatness. In fact, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served. This passage doesn't try and tell us that living in the world is wrong. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with respecting and looking up to Bible scholars and Christian leaders. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us at work respecting those for whom we work. The worldliness that's being condemned here is competitiveness, self-promotion, manipulation and looking down on others. And it clearly says that's wrong. Instead it teaches to be great we must serve. Those who are greatest are those who are fully, frequently and proudly learning how to forget themselves and find others they can help. Those who are great don't ask what's in it for me. They don't seek to spread their name or their reputation. Instead, those who are great look for ways of giving themselves away 
and for blessing others. If you want to recognize the greatness of the world, you'll look for those who serve others. If you want to be great, and I think you should, because we were all created for greatness. The way to greatness is through the cross, through the crucifying of what is unholy, ungodly and selfish in our lives. Do you want to be great? You should. You were made for greatness. Jesus asked his disciples, what do you want me to do for you? And he asks us the same question today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 